Father, thank you for this series. Thank you for the opportunity for us to wrestle with some difficult passages so that we get again the glory of the cross. And we pray that you might speak to each of us in the different places that we find ourselves this morning, the different perhaps relationships that we have with shame. We pray that as you do so ably, you would, like a surgeon, open up our hearts and that we might see afresh your goodness and your love for us. Amen. If, um, if you've not been around for the last few weeks, we're doing something slightly different at Maldon Road, and that is taking a topical series. We're looking at different passages that speak to us of, of different aspects and angles on sin. We want to see that the depth and the breadth of our sin again, the depth in wanting to wrestle with the reality of our rebellion and the breadth in wanting to see all the kinds of different models of sin, the different models that the Bible uses. So last week, as Sarah was teaching the kids so very well, we, we saw that sin is more than just rule-breaking, but it's profoundly personal. It was like spiritual adultery. It was like us being unfaithful to God and jumping into bed with other gods. The week before that, we saw that sin was like idolatry. We, we do more than listen to other gods that promise us life. We, we run after them and we pursue them. and We buy the lie and they rule us and they ruin us. And why put ourselves through this? Why, why week by week grapple with these difficult passages, these difficult concepts? Why make us feel uncomfortable? Well, because we don't just want to see the, the depth and the breadth, but we want to see the height of the cross afresh. His extraordinary love for us. God's graciousness. The glory of the cross. The reality of our sin shows the richness of his love. And we've said all along that sin is not just out there somewhere. Sin's in here, in our hearts. Because we forget that we're children of the King. We forget that we're under the new covenant. We forget his Holy Spirit living in us. We forget the new hearts he's given us. And we live in the old way again. We grapple with the old things. So hopefully it's more than just a let's beat ourselves up week by week. But it's let's glory again in the truth of the cross. Um, I just wanted to, before we kind of jump in, to show you the graphic again. It's slightly dark and that's deliberate. What do you see as you look at that? That's not rhetorical. I'm actually going to need some interaction. What do you see as you look at that? You see a hill, thank you. So there's a key bit there of coming down, representing the fall. But what else do you see? And you may not have spotted it yet, yes. You see the cross. Can you see just to the top right of where the sin bit is? The black cross is there. And when you see it, you'll keep seeing it, but it takes a while to see it sometimes. So the model of sin that we are thinking about this week, the picture that the Bible uses is that of shame. But what is shame? It's a complicated idea. It's multifaceted. It means different things in different contexts. And it's hard for us to get our minds around it. It's everywhere, but it's elusive. It's tricky to define. It's complicated. It's complicated for a number of reasons I just wanted to outline before we kind of jump in. 
The first reason it's complicated for us to understand is because we are miles away from the kind of shame culture that the Bible was written in, that much of the Bible was written in. We need to be upfront about that. So shame and honour is a major theme as you read through the Bible, but we find it hard to understand what it meant for them, and so therefore what it means for us. When we speak of a shame culture, we mean a culture where honour and shame are are driving forces that shape people's behaviour. Now increasingly in our multicultural nation, we do grasp something of that. We we see it on the news and and it appalls us or it confuses us through honour crimes or honour killings. Someone is punished or excluded from the family or, or stopped living because of what they've done. Often it's to do with, with secret relationships or pregnancies, if you've watched it on the news or you've seen um, various documentaries written about honour killing. Just a, a local example, back in 2005 up at Rose Hill, there was a young male Brooks student who was murdered because he got his girlfriend pregnant. He wouldn't agree to arrange marriage. And so Arash Gorbani Zarin was stabbed 46 times by the brothers of his Bangladeshi girlfriend. And in the West, we struggle with that. We, we kind of think, that sounds pretty barbaric. We, we don't get the strength of the concept to bring objective shame upon the family name. But when the Bible was written, shame and honor were key factors that controlled people's behavior. second reason I think shame is complicated is because often it's to do with how you feel. When we talk of personal shame, normally we, we mean feeling something. Often it's, it's right to feel guilt and shame when we've done stuff that is wrong. It's right to feel bad for stuff, but, but the feeling can be to do with all kinds of things. It can be to do with what we've done. I'm ashamed because I acted in that way or I spoke in that way at that time. It can be because of what we've not done. I'm ashamed because I, I didn't protect them. I should have spoken up. I should have said something. Or it can even be shame because of what's been done to us. I'm ashamed of the way that they treated me. And that kind of shame can, can hang over us forever. What's striking is that shame can be with us for decades. Skeletons in the closet can, can be there for a lifetime. And that shame is, is complicated thirdly because it's to do with both our standing in the community and our standing before God. So we feel shame about something that we've done and we relate to others horizontally. I feel ashamed because they saw me act like that. I feel ashamed because they know what I did. I feel ashamed because they know what happened to me. But then as well, it's not just horizontal, it can be shame before God too. I'm ashamed because of those actions and and so I think God hates me. I can't pray anymore. I can't go to church. I can't open up to my home group about what really happens. Because I feel ashamed. And those twin aspects, shame in the community horizontally and shame vertically before God, we will pick up shortly in Genesis 3. But before we get there, I just wanted to say at the start, that we need to acknowledge that in this room this morning, for some, shame is an everyday thing. Shame lives with us. 
It's a shadow that hangs over us every day. It's a reality that haunts. It's lurking there all the time. It affects everything. It colors everything. And it may well be that that no one else knows. For others, it's not so much that shame lives with you each day. It's just an unwanted visitor. It's a, a guest who turns up now and again and reminds you, who intermittently comes to stay. So I wanted to say that, that shame for some people is, is every day. And shame for others is just that intermittent visitor that comes to stay. But whoever we are, if this resonates with the reality of life for you, I want to say this. Please speak to somebody afterwards. Please speak to somebody this week. Somebody you can be honest with. Somebody you can be vulnerable with. Somebody you can trust. And if no one springs to mind, I would be very glad to talk to you or to, to pass you on to somebody who would be more appropriate. Because shame loves being in the murky darkness. That there it thrives and it flourishes and it blossoms. And so bring it out into the light. Deal with shame. As we'll reach Isaiah 54 in a bit, you'll see that your shame has been dealt with and your shame has gone. But we begin in Genesis 3. And our story starts, as it did a few weeks ago, in the Garden of Eden. So if you can open it up with me, that'd be great. Genesis chapter 3. Of course, though, the the verse is is not so much Genesis 3. We begin at the end of chapter 2, 2 verse 25. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Picture a place of no shame. That's the initial blueprint. Picture, Picture perfect relationships with the Lord and with the community. The Bible is a book about undoing shame. Or else why would 2 verse 25 be there? You see, if if you feel shame, the Bible is a book for you. At the heart of the story, shame is being dealt with and defeated by our God. One writer puts it well. They say, in the beginning, there was absolutely no shame with people walking around in the nude, literally and figuratively. They had no concerns about their bodies, which were flawless, and no concerns about what they had done because they hadn't done anything wrong. They feared no one's critical judgments because no one was critical or condescending. Nakedness without shame, to be known without feeling exposed, to live without any need for self-protection. But, but then. But then they eat from the one tree that God tells them not to eat from. And they show him that they think they know best and They don't trust him. They don't trust his character. They don't trust his words. And so look what happens. Let me read it to us from 3 verse 6 onwards. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. 
Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you've done? The woman said, the snake deceived me, and I ate. Did you see the response to their sin? It's from a place of utter security, complete vulnerability. What happens? They they hide. It's a horrible game of hide and seek. There's something about sinning and rebelling against God that we f- means we feel naked and exposed and, and vulnerable and so we hide. We want to be anywhere else but there. They hide from one another. They make clothes from fig leaves. They cover themselves, covering their vulnerability. They hide from God as they sneak around in the bushes, shaking and quaking as he walks in the garden. And then in a sense they hide from themselves because they're pointing their fingers of blame at somebody else. You can't pin this on me. It was her fault. It's your fault. You made her. She says, well, this snake made me do it. They blame each other and they blame the God who made them. And as they blaze the trail, so ever since we've been seeking to cover our guilt and our vulnerability and our blame and our shame ever since, In shame, we hide from one another. We keep people at arm's length. We don't let them in. We wear masks. We we cover ourselves. We play the part. And we hide from God. Which sets the scene for Isaiah 54 and we see why it is such good news. It comes straight after the final servant song, if you know Isaiah. Isaiah pointing ahead so so clearly and so beautifully to, to Jesus, God's king, who will suffer, who will make atonement for his people's sin. And so Isaiah 54, in glorious terms, gives us some fruit of the work of Jesus. In historical terms as well, it comes just after Ezekiel from last time. A time of restoration, a time of punishment from sin. This is the people of God returning to the land after they've been very publicly exiled. Let me read it to us, Isaiah 54 and 1 to 8. Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy, you who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your tent curtains wide, do not hold back, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth. And remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back and if... You were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger I hid my face from you for a moment. 
but with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. Do you see, for a barren woman in that culture, what does she feel? She feels awkward, humiliated and hopeless, exposed, embarrassed, vulnerable, worthless, without honour, unlovable. She feels shame. And it's a lovely picture. I love verse 1. What she do? She will sing. She will sing because even though she's been shamed, as he puts it, she's not had her own children, she's not had a husband, she's never been through labour. She will sing because the Lord is her husband. And he will cause her to be fruitful. It's picture language. So notice in verse 4, she's a widow. In verse 6, she's a wife rejected. But he's giving it to us from all kinds of different angles. Helping us to feel something of the shame and the isolation and the rejection. And so, verse 4, don't be afraid, you won't be put to shame. You will forget the shame of your youth. Verse 6, the Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young, only to be rejected, says the Lord. These are a people who have been shamed. And yet, verse 3 and verse 5, because of the work of the servant... They are a people who will become a worldwide people. You look at the exile and you think it's all gone wrong. What's God doing? He's gone back on his word. He's rejected his people. Israel has been defeated and diminished, very publicly punished. But now, now she doesn't have to be associated with shame anymore. Now, Now her barrenness is gone, her childlessness is gone, and the kingdom will expand and grow and multiply multiply and flourish, just as God promised. Abraham, David, the covenants, they're being fulfilled. The ends of the earth will be reached. So do you see for them what's going on? What is Isaiah saying? He's He's saying, where do you find your identity and your hope? God does not and cannot and will not desert his people. Isaiah says, Israel, after the servant comes, after the servant, then you will no longer feel shame, but you will be associated with your husband. And you will feel joy. Your status has been truly transformed. Your position has changed forever. You are significant and you will always be significant because of your Lord, because of the work of the servant. He's taken your shame away. Now, of course, Isaiah, we're speaking of a very particular context, a different situation from us. The shame of the people of God has come from a very public exile. The nations are laughing at them. The nations see God disciplining his his people, but they don't see it like that. They think God does not exist. And yet the answer to their shame and the answer to our shame is found in just the same place. Have a look at verse 5 and verse 8 in Isaiah again. See if you can spot all the ways that God describes himself 
the different language he uses, his names and his character. Verse 5, he is your maker. He is the Lord Almighty. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is your Redeemer. He is the God of all the earth. Verse 8, you read of everlasting kindness, a God who has compassion, God who is your Redeemer. And it's not an overnight thing. But the antidote to shame for, for Israel and for us is to learn to associate ourselves with, with this kind of a God, to remember who we are, to remember that he is both king and he's kind. And so it's from this place of shame that the Lord does something amazing. God is king and he is kind. We have a husband and we find our value in him. For many people, whether people who go to church or not, people who would call themselves Christians or not, people who aren't, just aren't really sure, have the default mindset that God is displeased with them. Many atheists that you read or, or speak to or you watch their videos online, they seem very angry with the God that they don't believe in. And yet I wonder, if in chewing over these concepts this week, maybe we shouldn't be surprised at that. Maybe it's a picture of shame, just like Adam and Eve in the garden. People hide from God because they're aware that they've done wrong. That they recognize his authority over them. And the backlash at him is a result of their feelings towards him. Because they know what he's like. They know he is angry with sin. And yet the thing that God does back in the garden in Genesis 3, he punishes them, but you get these glimpses of grace, even at the very beginning, that they cover themselves with, with flimsy leaves, which aren't going to cover much. He covers them with animal skins. Kindly, he covers their nakedness up. He covers their vulnerability. He covers their shame. And to get an animal skin, you kill an animal. So he covers them, even at the beginning, by means of a sacrifice. But you see, it's a sacrifice that points ahead. It points ahead to where shame will be dealt with forever. It points ahead to the servant of Isaiah who would come and die and redeem and make atonement for his people. Even in Genesis 3, it's, it's a covering, a sacrifice that points us to the true sacrifice. One writer said this, Shame is very much on display in Jesus' crucifixion. When he predicted his own death to his own disciples, he made sure to explain that it would be infused with mocking, a public flogging, and spitting. And if you witness this hatred and rejection, it will change you, because first we saw only our shame. Now we see Jesus' shame. It was deeper than our own, and, and we were the scorners. First we saw only our alienation and rejection. Now we see that Jesus' alienation and rejection was at the hands of the entire world, ourselves included. First we saw only contempt and self-contempt. Now we see that all human contempt was focused on Jesus and we participated 
No matter how stubbornly resistant to shame, to change your shame might be, witnessing extreme shame like this will move your shame to second place in your thoughts. He concludes, when Jesus and his shame occupy our attention, our own shame becomes less controlling. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying because of his shame, because he died naked, exposed, vulnerable, because he died for us, because of the extraordinary extent of his love for us, so we can begin to reimagine who we are, just like Israel. In Isaiah 54, our our ultimate worth, our ultimate identity, is not in what, what we've done, or not done, or even had done to us. It's in him, it's in Jesus and what he's done. And so as the writer to the Hebrews puts it, for the joy that was set before him, that's Jesus, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I'm going to finish this morning by quoting at length from a blog post. That's an um, article on the internet, if you don't read blogs. It was from someone just before Christmas. Um, some of you may have heard of her. She's a lady called Emma Scrivener. She's a Christian. She very publicly and helpfully writes of, of various things, including her grappling with, with shame, with eating disorders. She very nearly died. It's a blog called A New Name. This is a post from December, just before Christmas. Dear Shame, It's me, Emma. You've been telling me who I am for a long time now, but I thought it was time I said something back. It feels like we've known each other, well, forever. But tell me, when were we first introduced? Was it at infant school when I wet myself during story time? Or when my next-door neighbour caught me stealing strawberries from her garden? Was it when my body started changing? When my boyfriend broke up with me? Or have you always been there? The knowledge that I'm not the person I want to be, the body and the feelings I can't keep in, the hunger and the neediness I can't control and I can't disguise. Is it just me that you've hit on or or are you there with everyone? Do they feel you too, stinging their eyes, burning their throats, whispering when they start to feel good, dragging them back when they try and reach out? Who do you think you are? You are nothing and we both know it. What makes you think you can do this? You can't. You should be ashamed for even trying, shame says. Sometimes you speak through other people. You've let this school down. You're a disgrace to your parents. You should never have been born. I wish I'd never met you. I wish you could see how ridiculous you look. Sometimes you're on TV. This is what a real woman looks like. This is the shape of a mother, a daughter, a lover, a wife. Sometimes you roar and sometimes you hum. Sometimes I listen and sometimes I try to drown you out. I bought makeup to cover you and clothes to hide you. I sprayed you with perfume and draped you in silks. I fed you, I starved you, I cut you, I screamed at you till my voice gave way. But you stayed. 
And whatever I did, you were watching, waiting to catch me out. So what's changed? She says, well, on one level, nothing. I'm the same person I've always been. I lie and I cheat and I hide and I'm afraid. But your words can't harm me in the same way because I'm known. And not just by you, but someone else has seen me, seen through my masks, seen through my tears and my glitter and my smiles and my despair. And he doesn't say what you do. He doesn't see what you do. He doesn't tell me to cover up or try and fix myself. He says, come, come and be with me. Give me your shame. Give me your despair. Rest and be free. So, shame, I guess this is goodbye. I know I'll see you around and there'll be times when you try to move back, but as from now, your room has been taken. You're outside my head and when you try to get in, someone else will answer. And they'll tell you, I've seen you before. Do you remember? I nailed you to the cross. I defeated you. And you have no place here with my child. Don't ever come back. Emma would say it's a daily battle and she's not finished. She's begun to get something of the way that the cross, that the work of the servant in Isaiah deals with her shame. It's transforming her. Jesus was shamed for us so that we don't have to feel shame. Do you see, because of the cross, we don't need to hide anymore. We don't need to hide from each other. We don't need to hide from God. In Christ, we're not defined by what we've done or not done or even what's been done to us. No, no, his record becomes ours. His righteousness is given to us. It's, it's not what we've done, it's what he's done. And so know that you no longer need to feel humiliated or hopeless or exposed or embarrassed or vulnerable or worthless or without honour or unlovable or, or ashamed. Because of the cross, whatever our shame, we are loved and treasured and cherished by the God of the universe. And instead of shame, we can have joy. Instead of shame, we can sing. Let's pray. Father, you know us, you know the, the secret stuff in our lives, you know the shame that we feel, you know of, of skeletons in the closet, you know the reality of what we've done or not done or even what's been done to us, and you know how hard we find it to find our identity in, in Christ and in what he's done for us. 
You know the way that we try to hide from one another and we try to hide from you because we feel naked and exposed and vulnerable and yet we are clothed in his righteousness. And so please help us to to increasingly be the people that you've made us in him. Please help us to grapple with our identity and what it means to be in Jesus. Now, Father, I pray that if there are any in this room for whom this is particularly pertinent, Lord, you would give courage to bring shame out of the darkness and into your glorious light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.